Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would so work in us by your Holy Spirit that you would enable us to listen carefully with humble, attentive hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, last week, uh, Trevor began his sermon mentioning West Ham and football, and I'm going to begin with cricket. Just before uh, COVID hit us all in uh, 2020, the England cricket team was touring South Africa for a four-match test series. I was due a sabbatical, and so I decided to go with a friend to watch cricket for two weeks. And then when he returned uh, home to get on with some work, I stayed on for a further four weeks. Uh, Two weeks, I was at a theological college uh, in uh, Cape Town, and uh, two weeks, I went uh, traveling with my wife, Becca, who who flew out to join me. So I was in South Africa for just over six weeks. And during that time, I met loads of people from all sorts of different backgrounds, black and white South Africans, and I visited loads of places, from uh, uh, vineyards to townships. I had a, a great time, and it was hugely instructive for me. And it made me think a lot about the UK, as well as South Africa. Although apartheid in South Africa finished in the early 1990s, issues of race, although often unspoken, are nevertheless not far from the surface. And it made me reflect that actually exactly the same is true of the UK. But in the UK, not only is there an issue with race, but also there's the other factor of class as well. And of course, actually, maybe more reflecting that is just not, that's not just an issue for South Africa and the UK. Actually, it's true of every society and culture. There are those with whom you identify in your society, and those, there are those you don't. And the issues over which you identify with people or don't are legion. So there can be uh, racial and cultural differences. There can be uh, uh, over uh, things like uh, uh, money and wealth, where people live, uh, education, religious affiliation, uh, what work people do, uh, personalities, hobbies, age, even accents. In fact, Every aspect of human nature and experience can be grounds over which one begins to make judgments about other people. And not only do we make judgments about people and view them differently, we can then begin to treat them differently. And if into that mix you throw a power imbalance, well, it ends up by being very fertile territory for abuse and injustice. Well, in first century AD, it was clearly no different. 
Because in the opening verses of uh, James chapter 2, James uh, gives us a a cameo of class consciousness, whereby two people come into the church meeting and the stewards at the door start judging. One of them is dripping with wealth. Um, Obviously, uh, a gentleman in that society, possibly even an aristocrat, the other is conspicuous too, but for the opposite uh, reason. His ill-fitting and threadbare clothes marks him out as a pauper, possibly even a slave. And the steward at the door, to his shame, starts to allow his uh, attitudes to be shaped by the prejudices and class consciousness of his society, rather than by the classlessness of the kingdom of God. So that the steward grovels at the gentleman like a smarmy waiter at a posh restaurant, while he dismisses the poor man with a contemptuous sniff, and you can, you can sit in that spot uh, next, uh, on the floor next to my seat. Now, James's theme in these verses is radical. He says that this sort of uh, partiality, favoritism, is not just unfortunate, it is incompatible with authentic Christianity. It is a denial of the gospel. This is not some sort of secondary issue over which Christians can legitimately agree to disagree on its significance or importance. No, this is absolutely fundamental. James's big concern is that we may be mature and complete as Christians. He has no truck at all with a sort of nominal Christianity where people uh, may claim to believe certain things about God and the Lord Jesus. But those things just, just aren't worked out in practice. And last week we saw that not only do we need to be uh, quick to listen to God's word, that's, if you have a look, that's chapter uh, 1 verse 19, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, but also that we need to put what we hear into practice. Verse uh, 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. In other words, it is not enough for us this morning to hear James 2, 1 to 13 read and to listen to a sermon on it. And then the moment the uh, service ends and we go and have refreshments and we start chatting around with each other and then we head off for uh, lunch, but then we forget all about it. Now, if it's accordance with God's will, we need to act on what we hear. And then in verses uh, 26 uh, to 28 of chapter 1, James contrasts, if you remember, pure religion with worthless religion. And he gives three examples which he expands uh, 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 upon later in his letter. He says uh, how we speak, how we take care of the disadvantaged and the vulnerable, and how we keep ourselves from being polluted by the godless attitudes and values of the world. And then what then is the first area which he tackles, which he spends the whole of chapter 2 on? 
It is this issue of favoritism, bias, prejudice, class consciousness, whatever you want to call it, which is actually part of all those three examples he's just mentioned, how we speak, taking care of the disadvantage, and making sure that we're not being uh, polluted by the uh, attitudes of the world. And he says the issue is discriminating, making, having evil judgments. Look at verse 5. So he starts off, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus must not show favoritism. Then tells the cameo story. And then uh, verse uh, 4. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and becoming judges with evil thoughts? Look at evil thinking judges. That is his concern. And James here, he's not, he's not making kind of a political points. He's not addressing the uh, government or society of his day directly. No, he's addressing the Christian church. Churches like All Souls, Langham Place. And he tells us that within our church, we should achieve what Marxism and socialism and capitalism have all failed to achieve. The classless society. So that we should be able to say to uh, governments and outsiders, the world at large, come in and look at our fellowship. We're all sorts of people from different uh, uh, backgrounds and uh, ages and uh, uh, color and wealth, you know, all the variety, you, you see, we've got it all amongst us here. And actually, uh, there isn't this prejudice or favoritism, which is so rife and common in the world. But sadly, in the assemblies that James was writing to, and I suspect in ours, there often is. Now, there are four reasons which James gives for why all forms of favoritism and partiality are out for the Christian. Four reasons why this actually is a primary issue for every one of us. And the first is this. Favoritism is inconsistent with faith in Jesus. So look at verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. I wonder whether you've ever asked yourself the question, what class did Jesus belong to? That's ever kind of crossed your, your mind. Jesus is the Lord of glory, the Son of Almighty God. But despite that, he came and humbled himself to live as a man. And although Jesus spent time with the rich and affluent, most of his time was spent with the poor. Jesus himself had no status symbol to his name. He couldn't even pay the temple poll tax. He owned no house. There was no money tucked away in a NatWest bank account. But as people met Jesus, the wealthy and the powerful experienced no flattery or fawning. And the poor experienced no condescension. And what was Jesus' path to glory? These words will be familiar to 
many of us. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, it was because of that, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Lord of glory because he first went down and took the lowest place. And do you see what James is saying in verse 1? How can we believe that Jesus is the Lord of glory and adopt class-conscious attitudes? How can we discriminate between each other when faith in this one Lord Jesus Christ puts us all on the same level? When communists call each other comrade, it was basically a fiasco something which George Orwell's book, Animal Farm, makes very clear. But in the church, we are genuinely equal. We have a wonderful name for each other, which James mentions at the beginning of verse 1 and verse 5. Do you see it? My brothers and sisters. And that is not just an ideal, It is a fact. We are all brothers and sisters in the one family. Through Jesus, we are literally blood relatives. We are bound together by his blood shed on the cross. Clothes, education, appearance, status, wealth, racial differences are of no importance at all. They have no intrinsic worth. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Favoritism. It is inconsistent with faith in our glorious Jesus. But then second, favoritism is incompatible with the election of God. And we're looking here at verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? See, in that verse, James mentions God's choosing. That's the uncomfortable doctrine of election. And he says that God chooses the poor. Now, James is not idolizing poverty. But he does draw our attention to the fact that along with all Christian people, the poor can look ahead to a glorious future. Nor is James implying that God himself shows favoritism to the poor. In fact, there are plenty of examples in the Bible of God calling to himself those who would be considered wealthy. But James is saying that God in his election reverses the order and values of our world. If God seems to have a bias to the poor, it's because he hasn't got the same bias to the rich that we have. In our society, 
wealth, fame, titles, education, popularity, being white. (laughs) They could all be great assets. But they have no intrinsic value in the kingdom of God. Which is why it's so hard for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God because all those things he esteems and values, power, athletic skill, wealth, (laughs) whatever, count for nothing in God's economy. I want you to listen to a letter uh, written in the 18th century by the Duchess of Buckingham in reply to the Countess of Huntington's invitation to come and hear Whitfield preach at our house. I mean, it is, if it wasn't so tragic, it would be amusing. It is tragic. I thank your ladyship for the information concerning the Methodist preaching. These doctrines are most repulsive and strongly tinctured with pertinence and disrespect towards their superiors, in perpetually endeavouring to level all ranks and do away with all distinctions. It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as simple as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting, and I cannot wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiments so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. But God is not impressed by good breeding, good education, or good bank balances. He delights to show his favor to the poor, to the socially awkward, to those marginalized by society. And so should we. Uh, great series, the Bible Speaks Today series, which uh, uh, John Stott uh, was the um, uh, New Testament editor of it. And uh, this is uh, the commentary on James by Alec Mateer. And there's just a great sentence which I want to read to you. If we would follow the Lord Jesus, then it must be our glory as it was his to be incessantly and preponderantly on the side of the poor, the underprivileged, the disadvantaged and the oppressed. To do this is to identify ourselves with the very heart of God and to live obediently to the main line of his revealed will. And in the light of uh, that, the state of many of the churches in this country, I think is both suspicious and tragic. In places like South South America, uh, Asia, and Africa, although there are problems, uh, the church is growing. And it is poor people who are joining. Yet it seems that in our land, a number of the poorer communities feel themselves socially alienated from the churches. Evangelism in some urban priority areas is barely happening and is as difficult and unproductive as among Hindu and Muslim communities. Why is that? It's a question we need to ask ourselves. 
and we should be very concerned. As churches and as individuals, should we be reflecting God's concern for all people from all walks of life and be particularly concerned for those who are disadvantaged? Next, favoritism disobeys the law of love. Verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Now, the irony of the socialists and the capitalists is that they agree on the most fundamental thing. They're both materialists. They both measure a person's status or worth by his or her economic standard of living. The only equality they know is the equality of having. The Bible doesn't do that. It says that men and women are important and that they have a dignity whatever their economic situation. It talks about an equality of being. Poor and rich all must be loved. Not because of what they have, but because of who they are. And this law of love is the fundamental presupposition of the kingdom of God. It is the royal law. And Jesus told us in the parable of the Good Samaritan that my neighbor whom I must love will not always be my type of person. He doesn't say, uh, Israelite, love your fellow Jew, but Israelite, love the Samaritan whom you meet and is in need. Jesus doesn't say, resident of London, love that group of people who are like you and with whom you naturally get on with. But love the person you come across, be it at church or at work or in your street, whatever their cultural background, whether rich or poor, young or old, your type of person or not. Let me pose some questions to us. Okay, if you've been nodding off, wake up here, okay? Not day? Here are some questions for you to think about. Over the last couple of months, whom have you sat next to at church and chatted with? Who from the church have you spent time with? On your mobiles... Whose numbers from all souls do you have on your contact list? And for those of us who are in a position to offer hospitality, when we invite people from church into our homes, does it reflect the guest list? Does the guest list reflect the social mix we find at all souls? Or is there a bias towards those who are more like us? Class consciousness is a sin against the royal law of love. But we may think, hang on, if it is a sin, it's a very common sin and a very small one. And James comes back to us with, there's no such thing as small sins. Look at verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not 
murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. Can a murderer boast that he hasn't committed adultery? Of course not. Though no more can we pretend that class consciousness, favoritism, whatever kind, is a small sin. Morally, it's in the same category as murder. And then, finally, favoritism invites the judgment of God. So, verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. (coughs) Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Last week, when we looked at uh, chapter 1, James told us to make sure that we live by the perfect law that gives freedom. And here he tells us that we're going to be judged by it. God is going to judge us, and we're to live our lives in the knowledge of that fact. And just as God is merciful in his judgments, and sent Christ to the world to die on the cross so that we can know forgiveness and new life in his name. So we must be merciful. God relates to us not on the basis of what we deserve. If he did that, we should all be in hell rather than in church. No, God relates to us on the basis of mercy. Do you remember the... uh, parable that Jesus told of two debtors. One owed an enormous amount to his master and he was let off this vast unpayable debt of many, many millions. And then this man met someone who owed him a a, a little and he wouldn't show him any mercy and he hauled him off to prison. And Jesus says to his people, look, you have all been Given much and forgiven much. Don't work on the principle of desert and merit in your own fellowship. But if you do, you will receive the same treatment from God. And James is saying that same thing in verse 13, isn't he? Why should God value and show compassion to people as poor and as insignificant as we are to him if we don't show compassion to those who are poor? and worse off than us. God's mercy has not given us in a bucket so that we can hoard it. God's mercy is given us in a pipe so it may flow to others. So here are James's reasons against partiality, class consciousness, all kinds of favoritism. And I must say, I find them very compelling. Favoritism is inconsistent with faith in Jesus. Favoritism is incompatible with the election of God. Favoritism disobeys the law of love. And favoritism invites the judgment of God. Political systems and philosophies, whether they are socialist or capitalist, left-wing or right-wing, will not and cannot solve this past pro- this uh, problem of class consciousness and partiality. They won't solve it in our country, and they certainly won't solve it in our churches. 
Only Christ and the gospel can do that. And what we want to have here at All Souls, which is God's uh, part of God's family, his household, we are his uh, uh, society, his new society, is a fellowship of people where power and wealth, talents and success, whatever that means, no longer fascinate us. And where we refuse to kind of stratify and classify each other by nationality, education, wealth, postal district, (laughs) whatever it be. Because we all know that we are dear brothers and sisters in Christ. We want a fellowship which remembers at all times, especially actually where the service ends and we start mixing each other. And when we invite people uh, into our homes and do entertaining, we want uh, a fellowship that remembers all time her Lord and Master, who mixed with the wealthy and the powerful, but there was no kind of flattery or fawning. And he spent most of his time with the poor and there was no embarrassment or condescension. We'll have a moment of quiet as the uh, musicians come up and then we will um, pray. I'll lead us in prayer. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. We pray, Heavenly Father, for for forgiveness for those times when we have shown partiality. And we pray for forgiveness for when we have thought that this is just a problem for others or is not such a big issue. So often we do make judgments about others and treat people differently and seek to befriend those who are just more like us. Help us as individuals and as a church to think Christianly about how we relate to one another so that our life together as individuals and as a church family may it reflect more and more your Holy Son in whose name we pray.